0: Let's, um, let's look at John chapter 1. These are really, really important verses, especially verse 14. It's really been a, a keynote verse for us as a congregation. Let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to just read verses 1 through 14 in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus, full of grace and truth, to tabernacle among us, to show us your love, to make us your children. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So yeah, these are important verses to us. They're important verses in the whole Bible, but um, we want to talk about the tabernacle. We want to talk about the grace of truth, and we want to talk about the, the truth of God's grace. So, uh, so we'll dive in with that whole uh, language of how the Word became flesh and dwelt or, or tabernacled among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So where else in the Bible... Do you see those two themes of God's dwelling place, His tabernacle, uh, paired up with God's glory? Uh, And you you see that very clearly, actually, in the book of Exodus, all throughout the book of Exodus, Uh, and especially at the end where we read in, in chapter 40 how the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." Um, there's something kind of interesting there. I mean, I, I think if you've been around the Bible or been around church, you're, you're f- probably familiar with the Old Testament, the tabernacle, and the, they call it the Shekinah glory cloud. The word Shekinah and the word for, for tabernacle in the Old Testament, those are linked. They have the same consonants, they the same root. So this idea of the glory cloud over the tabernacle, uh, maybe you've seen pictures of that. There's kind of one on the front of your bulletin to give you some bearing. But if you're new to the church, you're new to the Bible, maybe this is all like, what is that about? I don't know. Well, it's setting the stage for Jesus. But in a in kind of an interesting way, almost in a contrast, because when, when Moses encounters the, the cloud and the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, he can't go in, he can't come close, he can't approach because the, the glory of God is, is just so other so different from, from you know, Moses or from any of the priests, from any of the other Israelites, separating God's holiness, God's character from, from them because of our sin, because of the things that we've done against one another, against God. And so there's a rift, there's a barrier, there's a separation. But you, know, you see these, the, the kind of a combination of separateness and togetherness all throughout the Old Testament, particularly the tabernacle and the temple structure. But but what's really interesting, though, is that when, when, when John reveals, hey, this is how Jesus came to us, and, and he kind of picks back up in Genesis, right? In the beginning was the Word, and then he moves on to, to Exodus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we've seen his glory. Um, what's, what's really kind of interesting is that when Jesus is described as full of grace and truth, he's not, Jesus isn't being described directly, it's his glory that's being described. And that furthermore, there's something about Jesus' glory that's approachable. It doesn't keep us at a distance. It doesn't mean that we're separate. It doesn't mean that we can't approach him. Actually, what you see throughout the New Testament is everybody's coming to Jesus and He's, and he's loving them, even the outcasts, even the people that everyone else is saying, No, we don't want them. They should be separate from us. They're unclean, you know, they're the riffraff, they're the sinners, etc. Jesus says, No, I want them to come close. So there's a bit of a contrast here. We need to to understand that better. But let's talk about the glory of of Jesus, right? The Word became flesh. This is the same eternal Word from from verse 1. The Word was God. The Word was with God. And the Word became flesh. The Word didn't stop becoming God in order to become flesh. The Word remained fully God and became fully human. So that in a way that nobody could understand, and we still kind of, it bends our minds to try to understand it, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he is full of grace and truth, infinitely full of both. Not partially, you know, not a mixture or whatever, a little bit of grace, a little bit of truth, and it's a nice cocktail. No, he's infinitely full of both. And that's what's so glorious not so much about Jesus, but about his grace and truth. Because what, what glorious, what we've seen is glory, full of grace and truth, what grace and truth are, are, are being modified by is that word glory. It's unbelievable. We can't conceive of it. We don't understand how can he be full of grace and truth? Because we don't seem to be able to reconcile both of those at the same time. We can't seem to to walk in grace and truth simultaneously with any kind of You know, we're uncoordinated when it comes to doing both of those. Uh, I'll I'll use Tim Keller's words because he's he's better at this than I am. He says that there are two thieves of the gospel, legalism and liberalism. And they both kind of have to do with grace and truth, right? So what, what he's saying is that we either ignore what is true True, we ignore truth for the sake of grace, and being gracious and being loving. You know, we want to be kind, and so we just kind of forget the rules in the name of grace. And that's liberalism. That's one thief of the gospel. The other thief is legalism, which ignores love. It says no to grace in order to keep the rules, in order to enforce the rules, in order to you know keep the status quo going. So. Here's what Tim Keller says in, uh, well, he, he and Kathy co-wrote The Meaning of Marriage. They say that love without truth, grace without truth, is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. And truth without love or without grace is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. We don't want to hear it because truth in that case is being used like a, like a hammer, you know, a weapon trying to beat, beat us up. So we don't want to hear it. But God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. Both full of grace and truth, right? The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and to repent. And the conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. So Jesus comes to us full of grace and truth. Not a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but full of both. And he wasn't, you know, again, this is where we struggle. He wasn't a conservative. You know, he he wasn't a Pharisee. Uh, and he wasn't a liberal like like the Romans. We we, we can't handle that. He's got to be one or the other. We can't you know do both. And yeah, Jesus is is not playing that game. He was altogether different. He was full of grace and truth. He was glorious, and we have never seen anything like it. We, we can't. We can really struggle to even conceive. How can you be both? The truth without grace, you know, if that comes to us, truth without grace is like a, a, a diagnosis without a cure. And it kills us. And then, you know, grace without truth is like having this beautiful buffet spread. You know, it's like going downstairs after the service, and you've got all this amazing barbecue and, and so on, and you've got no appetite. Yeah. You know, how do we do both? Jesus came to diagnose us and to heal us. Jesus came to satisfy our appetite with his own self, his own body and his blood. And, and so when he comes to tabernacle among us, he's doing something that had not been done before. Because previously when God had tabernacle among us, he was other. We couldn't approach. Now we can Jesus comes to us full of grace and truth, full of of the grace of truth and the truth of grace. And let's start with the grace of truth, right? Because Jesus is infinitely full of truth. And, you know, probably most of you remember how later on in John's gospel, they're having the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and Jesus is talking to them, and he says things like, you know, I am the way and the truth. And the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He is infinitely full of truth. The Bible doesn't distinguish between uh, your truth and my truth. The Bible it says that God's truth is true for everyone. It's, it's it's macro truth, and and that's really you know hard on current cultural ears. We don't want to believe in a meta-narrative. We don't want to believe that there's, you know, a a universal right and a universal wrong. We don't want to believe there's such a thing as truth anymore. But God's truth is true, and Jesus is full of God's truth for everyone. This makes people very nervous for two very good reasons. If you're nervous right now, I want to to validate that. (laughs) You should be nervous because... First reason is that people historically, and it just, it just goes on and on and on, you, you can't stop flipping the pages in the history books backward you know, and go back and back and back, and you still continue to see people using God's truth in untruthful ways. We get nervous about the idea of, of Jesus being full of this truth, and it's true for everybody, and you know, we need to embrace that because we go, but look at all the ways that people in authority have made truth claims based on the Bible, and all the while they're abusing the truth and abusing people. And this can be done, again, in kind of a macro-political way. It can be done in a micro-familial way. Somebody wants what they want, they're in power, they're in authority, they're keeping that authority, they're trying to grow their power, and they're using God's Word to try to make you do what they want you to do and fit into their mold? Doesn't mean it's not true. But you're just like, man, this is wrong. This is wrong how that truth is being used. You've probably been the victim of it. I've been the victim. We've all experienced this. We've all also perpetrated it. We're on both sides of that coin. People can use scripture to justify just about anything. They want you to worship like them. They want you to dress like them. They want you to think like them. They want you to vote like them. They want you to do X, Y, and Z like them. And they're, and they're quoting scripture all along the way. Don't have anything to do with acknowledging God or honoring God, it's just kind of going with their agenda. That makes us nervous about truth claims. The other thing that makes us nervous about Jesus being full of God's truth for everyone is, you know, it, well, it's, I mean, it's not to say that every time a person quotes scripture that they're abusing power. Sometimes, sometimes they're, they're, they're doing it absolutely in the right way to glorify God, to honor him, to, to seek to advance his kingdom and to build up the saints and to tell us what's true so that we know what is ultimate reality. You know, like to walk through life without knowing what's real is terrible. So we we should be grateful for the truth when it comes to us, and and we're aware that sometimes it can be twisted and warped, but that doesn't mean that it's still not true. And and yet, (laughs) this reveals the real issue while we're nervous about ultimate truth, about Jesus being full of God's truth for everyone at all times and all places. Because, Not just because people misuse the truth, but just because it exists at all. We don't want a macro. We don't want a God telling us that we, he has a claim on our lives. We don't want any authority over us. We want to be the authority. We want our freedom. We want our autonomy. We don't want God. We want to be our own God. Furthermore, it would be nice if everybody else would acknowledge me as their God. <laughs> and do my thing and revolve around me. And you know, what I say goes, it becomes a law to them. That's how messed up we kind of get. The truth is, we all tend to distort the truth. We all play that power game and we, we take the truth and we twist and we warp it in order to get what we want. That's why we lie. And if anybody here has never told a lie, then God bless you. I'd really like to meet you. That's why we lie. That's why we twist the truth and warp the truth, and we use our power and our influence and whatever little authority we may even have, even as a five year old has authority over her siblings or his siblings or the people on the playground. And they'll take the truth and they'll twist it to get what they want. And we'll even say what is absolutely true and not twist it at all just in order to get somebody else in trouble. Mommy, little Johnny did such and such, which Johnny did, but why is Sally telling on Johnny to get what she wants? We've got a really messed up relationship with the truth. God's truth is true for everyone, even the hard truths, even what we'll call awful truths, truths that are hard to hear. Truths like in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus says, is the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. We hate that verse. We explain that away and talk about our, you know, why that's not appropriate and you know, why we don't have to do that, and why we don't have to really turn the other cheek and why we don't really have to give our, our, our other tunic away. When all the while Jesus is saying, you know what the fundamental truth is? Live a life of such contrasting, Love to to the world that they don't know how to explain your generosity and your willingness to love your enemy. That's hard to hear. And you hear things like later on in Luke in chapter 9 Jesus says if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up your instrument of execution and die to yourself and follow me. That sounds great. That sounds like you know a winning a uh, church campaign to get lots of people in the doors. Come and, and deny yourself and follow Jesus. Like those are hard truths, right? And then you get to Paul and he says things like in Romans 1 that the wrath of God, right, wait a minute, stop right there. God's angry? Yeah, that's true. It's not, that's, the, that's not the only thing about him, but, but there is such a thing as the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Anybody know? Suppress the truth. Who take what God has revealed and said, no, that's not true. We're going we're to suppress it, we're going to twist it, we're going to warp it or whatever. God's angry about that. It's hard to hear, but it's true. You know, Jesus uh, in John 18, again, kind of back into John at the end of the book, he says, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world. I've tabernacled among you to bear witness about the truth. And he's talking to Pilate. He's on trial and Pilate, you know, Pilate's sneering response. What is truth? What is truth? And Jesus says to us, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The truth about us is that we are guilty. The, the awful truth that, that God is in his grace to us to graciously tell us the truth as a, as a physician, a, a responsible, caring physician would diagnose his or her patient with, with what's true, with what's objective and not you know sugarcoat it. And, and so you can deal with you know, what is the news so we can kind of figure out what to do next. God's diagnosis of us is that we are guilty. We've sinned. The truth is that none of us is is, is righteous. We can't earn God's favor. The truth is that we've offended him. The truth is that he really is angry about the ways that we've taken his truth and misused it and misaligned it and done our own thing with it. The truth is that God will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. And the truth is that we have no hope apart from God's grace to us. Those are awful truths, those are hard truths, but they come with wonderful truths. You think about the word awful and wonderful. Awful truths, we think we don't want to hear. Wonderful truths, yes, yes please, more. But the word awful and the word wonderful are basically saying the same thing. One's full of awe, the other's full of wonder. Do you know that you don't get the wonderful truths unless you also embrace the awful truths? But the awful truths are meant to set the stage for the wonderful truths. Some of which we already read in the first verses here in in John's gospel, that Jesus is coming into the world, that God isn't separate from us. He's not not far off. He wants a relationship with us. He's pursuing us. And that by all who receive him and believe on his name, in verse 12, he gave the right to become what? Children of God? Loved by our Father in heaven? And that Jesus, when he tabernacles among us, he's not coming as a judge, he's not coming to crack skulls, he's not coming to you know, wreak God's vengeance because of all the ways that we've misaligned the truth. And instead, he comes full of grace and truth. This is wonderful. This is good news. And I, and I know a lot of us know later on in chapter three that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him doesn't have to perish but can have eternal life through faith in him, believing in him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And John later on in another epistle says, behold everybody, look at the kind of love that God has shown us, that we through faith in his son could become sons, could become daughters. That We should be called children of God. That is wonderful. And that's just as much of God's truth, you know, as as any other part of Scripture. Awful means the same as wonderful, and that's the the grace of God's truth coming to us. And then let me me just wrap up by talking about the truth of His grace. Grace isn't something that we've invented. It's not something that, you know, Christians have just kind of developed this, this, this theory, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. No, it really is true that Jesus is infinitely full of truth and infinitely full of grace. Think about that for a second. Jesus being infinitely full of grace means that there is no limit to his forgiveness. There is no point at which he says, enough. I'm done, I'm out, I'm, I'm, my pockets are empty. I got nothing left for you. You cannot get to the bottom of his love. You cannot get to the bottom of his forgiveness and his kindness. It's infinite. And you see that on display later on in John's Gospel, chapter 8 this time, where the scribes and the Pharisees, the people in charge, they bring a woman who had been caught in adultery. And they placed her in the midst, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Right? And they're, they're setting a trap for Jesus. Uh, they've got their hand on the lever to pull the trap door because they're just waiting for him to forgive her. And then, you know, good, we caught him. He doesn't really believe in the law. He, takes the law, you know, he doesn't take the law seriously. You know, and then, if he does, you know, execute her and say, you know, off with her head, then you know, other trap door. Now the people aren't going to follow him anymore. We've got him. We've got him in our trap. They said this to test Jesus, they may have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. Like they're there to test him. They've got this woman standing in front of them. Who knows if she's clothed or not? We we don't know. Maybe she's got some kind of you know blanket wrapped around her. She might be just stark naked in the middle of this, this group of men. And he's he's down on the ground, right in, on his, in the dirt, with his finger. <laughs> you gotta wonder what's going through their heads. He stands out, he, he, we're, we're doing something. We're trapping you, Jesus. Pay attention. <laughs> And and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. When they had heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones who had enough common sense to go, okay, we're dealing with a professional here. We better go retreat and regroup. Beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in front of him. Jesus stood up. This is the second time, right? Twice, we're told. He's down drawn in the dirt. He stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? There's no one left to condemn you. And the only time, and and the first and only time we hear her voice in this whole story, she says, no one, sir. No one, Lord. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Can I just... Say a couple of words about this encounter. What a dreadful encounter for her. For this woman. Caught in adultery. She's guilty. And she's being victimized. She's being put, used as a pawn in this trap, the bait, you know, this meat that's, you know, setting the trap for Jesus. And you've got all these eyes that are condemning her and these voices that are speaking these lies and trying to you know, just, uh, justify her execution. Can you imagine the, the dread that she's feeling? Um, and, and it didn't matter that, that it, was, it was a setup because the truth is she actually is guilty of adultery. They're not making the circumstances up. They're just using her as, as a pawn in their game. And Jesus told her the truth, right? It was sin. Don't sin anymore. You know, grace is dreadful to need because it exposes our guilt. We don't want to be in that position where we need forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't tell her, there's nothing to worry about. He does tell her that it's sin, don't sin anymore. But look at the beauty of his grace. He says, neither do I condemn you. And how can he say that? How can he do that? How is that true and how is that just for him just to forgive her sin? Well, I think it has something to do with, with drawing in the dirt. For ages, I mean, you can open any commentary on the book of John and go to chapter 8 and everybody wants to know what was Jesus drawing in the dirt? What, was he drawing a picture Was he writing a scripture verse? Was he quoting, you know, something? What was he doing drawing in the dirt? And everybody's just like trying to wrap their head around this fascinating question of Jesus drawing in the dirt, and he does it twice. Why is he doing it twice? Well, uh, I I didn't realize it either until uh, a a friend of mine was preaching on this, and and I heard him, and I went, that's brilliant. What he simply pointed out is that everybody wants to know what Jesus is drawing in the dirt. Everybody's looking at Jesus, drawing in the dirt, trying to go, what's he drawing? Can you see? I don't know. What is he?" Jesus, we're trying to trap you, and he does it a second time, drawing in the dirt. And everybody's eyes are where? Focused on Jesus. In the beauty of his grace, what he's done is he's taken everybody's glare off of the woman and put it on himself. He's taken their stares, he's taken their judgment, he's taken their criticism, he's taken their scorn, and now it's focused on him, isn't it? Just like yours was. We all want to know, what's he drawing in the dirt? I don't care about that woman anymore, and all of a sudden she's feeling like, you can see her shoulders drop, you can see her breathe a little easier. She's not in the condemnation anymore, and he affirms that. I don't condemn you either. Why? Because there would come a day, right? When all those, all those glaring, staring, condemning, judging, critical eyes would be focused on him as he hung on a cross for our sins. His grace and his truth are maintained at the cross. And furthermore, you see the beauty of his grace, not only in his extending grace to her, but he extends grace to the scribes and the Pharisees. How? He gives them the opportunity to repent. He doesn't let them pull that that lever. He doesn't let them spring their trap. He doesn't let them be guilty of that. I mean, yeah, they were guilty in in the first place, but he doesn't let them go all the way and go the distance with it. Instead, they're all dropping their stones because he's he's gently telling them the truth. And then they are able to accept the consequences of their own sin and, and, and walk away. He gave them his grace, sparing them the guilt of hypocritical judgment, showing them that mercy. That was beautiful. That's great grace. So it's, it's, it's dreadful to need, but it's, it's beautiful to see. Um, there's a, like a legendary story. I don't know. Nobody's been able to really verify it, but it's been making the rounds about a, a, a church conference or something. Like um, this was back in the 1950s. And C.S. Lewis was there and a bunch of other theologians. And the, you can imagine these, you know, tweed coats and maybe some pipes are being smoked and this circle of, you know, scholars are, are, are all sitting around talking about what's unique about Christianity. What's distinct about what we believe? And then along comes Clive Staples Lewis and everybody's like, oh, Jaxi's here. We should ask J- Jaxi, you know, and uh, what, what's unique about Christianity and C.S. Lewis without without a pause so that's easy it's grace it's grace every other like this conference of comparative religions right they're all talking about what what do different religions believe about god and is there overlap and what's unique and what's distinct and what's the same and so on and you know c.s lewis says well it's easy difference is grace because in general, there are two major concepts of God. One, as this boss that you have to please and make happy, and you work hard, and you, you do good, and you go home with a paycheck. You know, you earn your way. And if you don't do your work, you, you don't get away. You don't get the ticket. So that's one way of viewing God. The other way of viewing God is sort of he's this, this overindulgent parent who doesn't really care what we do. And, you know, you've seen the, the TV shows and the movies where, the, the kids are just making a, uh, going crazy and making a mess of things, and the parents think, "Oh, my little, isn't they aren't they cute?" You know, and they just don't care. They don't care what the kids do. And people think of God that way, or, or even worse—not that He's the overindulgent parent, but that He's the absent-minded, dotard grandfather in the sky. Maybe with some cognitive decline, can't remember your sins, my sins. God does not have Alzheimer's. He remembers everything. He knows everything. And he gave us Jesus, the one who would would demonstrate the fullness of his grace and truth on the cross. He died for the woman caught in adultery. He died for us. He died for all who believe in him. And on the cross, what he was doing is he was showing us that sin results in separation. The cross is about separation. He's separated from us. He's separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross is the greatest evidence that when Jesus took our sin on himself, he became our substitute sacrifice. He was able to maintain the truth that, yeah, the the, the wages of sin is death, and that's what happens. And that at the same time, he would show mercy and grace to those who call on him and who trust in a substitute that God would provide. Have you trusted in that substitute? Is he your savior? And if he is, you have the fullness of God's truth and his grace right in Jesus. The cross tells us the truth about God's grace, not just the truth about our sin, but the truth about his willingness to forgive us. The height and the length and the width and the breadth of God's extent to, that, that he would go in order to provide love to his people. And you and I can have a clean record. That you and I can have uh, you know, a clean slate that we would be stainless and spotless. Uh, Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1, that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. That's the, the fullness of Jesus' grace being dumped out on us through the cross. And that the cross is the, where the wisdom and the insight is made, is revealed to make known the mystery of God's will, the mystery of how can God still maintain his justice and simultaneously offer us forgiveness? How do we walk out being full of truth and grace? Jesus showed us how. It's hard to do, but as recipients of that grace, uh, it's our, now our, you know, beautiful calling to go and show the world what God's like, that God and Jesus are full of truth and grace as we. Try to figure out how to live lives like that, lives that don't buy into the polarity, don't buy into the divisiveness, don't buy into the, you know, this sort of monolithic way of looking at things where we embody both truth and grace. Paul says in Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. So speak the truth, but do it in love. Don't ignore grace. And be gracious, but don't ignore the truth. Which of the first? Is it truth? Is, is Jesus full of truth and grace or full of grace and truth? Do you remember which one came first? He's full of both, infinitely both. But you've got to think as, as as John's writing his epistle and, or his gospel, he's, he's full, and he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, full of, should I write truth and grace or grace and truth? Grace and truth. Why? Lead with grace. We don't ignore truth, but lead with grace. Lead the way Jesus led us. From his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth and your grace, how it's been extended to us, how you've tabernacled among us to show us that you are approachable, that you want a relationship with us, that you've made a way for that to happen through, through the cross, the revelation of your truth about, about our need for a, a substitute sin bearer, and the revelation of your, your, your grace, that you would provide one, that you would take away our sin, that you would make us spotless, that you would take away the, the eyes of judgment and guilt and condemnation. Then instead, you would speak your pardon to us, your words of love. Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called your children. And that is what we are. And I pray that as we continue another 20 years of ministry here at Tabernacle, that we would seek to grow and be more and more filled with truth and grace, that the, our neighbors and the nations would see more clearly uh, the image of Jesus in us. You have come to tabernacle among us. In his name we pray. Amen.